On today's show, I'm speaking with Dino Ramsey, who's president of Patient Direct Care, which is a clinic that's currently based in Battleground, Washington. And Patient Direct Care follows a new model uh, called Direct Primary Care, which is where individuals pay membership fees to belong to this clinic and get their primary care uh, pretty much entirely covered. This is not a replacement for insurance necessarily, and it's also not quite the same as Zoom care. Uh, we thought it was interesting, so sat down with Dino to talk a bit about what the heck direct primary care is. I'm joined now by Dino Ramsey. Dino's here to talk with us about direct primary care, which is a new model in healthcare, and I learned about it and had some questions, so asked him to come on the show and talk with us about what the heck it is. Direct primary care is a movement. Uh, I mean, it's a, obviously it's a model of care, but I'm starting to think of it more as a movement because there's so many docs who are just sick and tired of what it is they're doing, and they want to get out from under the system. So I think a lot of patients... Look, I know a lot of people are quite happy with their doctors and with their level of access to care, but not everyone is. Uh, it costs too much. You've got a lot of hoops to jump through, um, and it's impersonal, um, and nobody has the time to sit and listen to you. Uh, so the really negative uh, sentiments towards health care, and you know what? The docs feel it too. They're absolutely miserable. So there are a, a fair number of enterprising physicians that over the last four or five years are really snowballing, if I can call 700 clinics around the country, the entire United States is snowballing. But I remember I went to the first direct primary care conference in St. Louis four years ago, and there were like 140 practices, and now there's 700 and over 1,000 yeah. uh, providers, and nurse practitioners are doing it, and there are a whole bunch of other folks doing it. So let's back up for a minute and talk about kind of what is uh, direct primary care. So I, like for example, uh, for much of my time here in the Pacific Northwest, I've had Kaiser and I had it through an employer and then uh, eventually through um, the Affordable Care Act, I went to Kaiser. So I have this idea in my head that the the medical system is this more HMO based uh, project. How is this different? So this is really just the primary care. None of the specialty stuff, none of the uh, the imaging and the other things, but actually your frontline talk-to-face-to-face doctor at a monthly fee, usually with very low or no copays. Mm-hmm. So at our clinic, we, don't, we do no copays. But I know some clinics are still doing like $10, $15, $20 copays for each visit just to make sure that people don't overuse it. But the fact is I've never found anybody overusing it when there are no copays. Mm-hmm. So the way I like to put it is at our place, the membership 75 bucks, and the visits are free. Mm-hmm. And there's really no restrictions on the visits. But, you know, again, why can you run a business like that is uh, who's crazy enough to spend that much time in a doctor's office, for crying out loud? So somebody pays the, say, $75 mm-hmm. membership fee, so that's a monthly fee. That's right. So similar to what you might pay for your monthly insurance. Um, and then primary care visits would be you have a cold, uh, hey, doc, this hurts, that hurts. What else so would fall under that? Like what kinds of things would you yeah. go to a primary care doctor? I mean, the nature of primary care is in, in a lot of countries, not just the United States, uh, is, is fundamentally your first contact. Look, I've got belly pain. I'm worried about it. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I should see a gastroenterologist or a cardiologist or what kind of doctor. So let me go to my personal, quote-unquote, family doctor, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, 
and uh, that person's going to tell me if I need to worry about it. If it's uh, something you can manage and treat in the primary care doctor's office, you manage and treat it. Or if it requires referral, then that person's responsible for coordinating the downstream stuff. That's the way most healthcare systems in the world that are really efficient. Now, we're talking about efficiency, not effectiveness. Uh, I'm a geeky, right? So that actually matters. But the efficiency in healthcare systems is usually reliant on primary care. Mm -hmm. So where you see waste and duplication, it's usually because there's not very good primary care. So fundamentally, this is a model. The United States has never supported primary care historically, and this is a model that really puts it front and center. Yeah. So what if, uh, so if somebody does need to go to a specialist for something that is uh, broader than primary care, mm -hmm. how does this work? What, what happens next? Well, it's just not part of the direct primary care model. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a simple answer. Um, that's probably not a very satisfying answer. Well, you I still want to know, like, yeah, then so, what? So then what? Right. So, say so, so basically, I have time because I'm not running around seeing 30 patients a day. So I'm going to take advantage of my connections and my networks and find access to that care at a price that is reasonable or affordable, and I'll talk you through it. I'll work, I'll walk you through it. Now, most of my patients actually do have insurance. They either have a high deductible health plan. That's what we pair very well with. So I just connect them to a referral the way anyone normally would. Mm -hmm. But I have a large number of people who don't. So I had one gentleman who came with, okay, uh, can I say blood in your poop? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, it turned out to be colon cancer, all right? Huh? So, yeah, very serious. So we, we found it. We diagnosed it. I got him to the right person. We did the biopsy. I found the foundation money. We got to the oncologist. Now, you know, I've got a I've got, you know, 30-year career in medicine. It's kind of weird. Most of that time has been spent dealing with underserved and vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. And all my time in bank, well, I shouldn't say all my time, but a significant portion of my time, I just gravitate to it. Uh, so, uh, you know, my wife's on the board of the free clinic. So, we, you know, we pay attention. We plug in whatever community we've moved to. So, yeah, I know where to call to get, say, project access referrals for people who are low income and maybe I'm seeing them as a freebie. And uh, I'll, I'll connect them. I'll do what's necessary to connect them somewhere, somehow, some way. So you're never really out in the lurch. Right. What, um, what about prescriptions? So prescriptions can be really interesting. Obviously, you know that you know you got the generics that are cost pennies, and you've got very expensive medications. And ninety-nine percent of the time, uh, okay, maybe ninety-seven percent of the time, you really can get by with some fairly inexpensive medications. So, uh, if that is good enough, and the patient isn't having any problems. Um, will prescribe the generics. And we've got a lot of resources, actually, because, uh, you know, these pharmacy benefits managers, the, 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 I, I, there's, a, there's, there's some discussion going around about some unethical behavior on parts of these, these particular companies that are really jacking up the price, even on generics and stuff like that. But they also have discount cards, which is really bizarre. So if you don't have insurance, you don't want to use your insurance, you can actually pick up your Prozac for like two bucks instead of four dollars at Walmart, mm -hmm. which is absurd. Uh, as a matter of fact, we've got, uh, so the other thing is we do dispensing in office. Um, we find there are some wholesale distributors. This is legal in Washington. It's not legal in Texas, for example. Uh, but, you know, the point is that we, we find ways of saving people money, uh, both in pharmaceuticals and in labs, because we're not taking a retail markup, right? You, you sort of most people are familiar with the concept, right? Mm -hmm. A 10 or 20% markup pays for the administration of something, which is what we take, and 300% is a typical retail markup. 
which is why you have all these 70% off sales at, uh, after Christmas. So <laughs> they're still way going to double their money on that. But uh, we're just taking a 10 or 20% margin, and we'll keep medications in-house either for convenience or because of a price advantage. And I can give you examples. Uh, so our amoxicillin, antibiotic, common, people come in with sinus infections, kids with ear infections. Uh, we charge 7 bucks. It's just a minimum because it does take us some movement uh, to get that. So it's actually a little bit bigger than a 20% markup on the amoxil. However, we can get Prozac for $7 too, uh, but I can get you 100 pills, mm-hmm. which is better than the $10 for three months at, at some of the other pharmacies in town. Who Who is the ideal client for this? I mean, someone who is chronically ill probably has needs that are far greater than this can this can assist so well it, it depends i mean if they really need the specialty care so i think we've gotten so accustomed to having a knee jerk always go to a specialist um you, listen you've got to trust your primary care doctor not to be a cowboy uh you know there's a lot of dynamics in healthcare about you know uh, you know, is this nurse practitioner as well educated as the physician? Does the specialist know more than the family doc? You know, look, all of that is 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 basically something you need to throw out the window. You have to ask yourself: Do you trust the level of training and skill that your provider is giving you? Is that person listening to you? Uh, are there unanswered questions that are being passed on from visit to visit, or are they being comprehensively dealt with every time you go in, or at least every second time? Um, uh, you know, every other visit, at least you, mm-hmm. you should, it, it shouldn't go long before it's fully addressed. So, um, I, you know, I think the ideal patient, okay, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be surprised if I say everyone can benefit, right? <laughs> the people who would benefit the most, you know, I got to tell you, young people, we've got different price points for really young people. You know, if you're sitting at home because you're afraid of what you're going to end up paying, uh, in urgent care. I remember one guy, he stayed six weeks with a cough and a fever. Six weeks! Of course he had a pneumonia, right, mm-hmm. by the time he came in. And you know what? This wasn't at our practice, at urgent care before I, I opened this place up, and we knocked the price down for him. And can you imagine if, if he didn't have to worry about the, the, the cost of coming in? Now, you know, the more chronic diseases you have, the more coordination of care you require, the more you can push to primary care rather than specialty care, the more you will benefit. So I've got this one really complicated diabetic who's had, you know, kind of really bad luck streak lately. Um, I don't mind that I've seen him probably six times in two months. That's okay. It's really no skin off my teeth. I don't get to see that many patients. I'm not seeing 30 people a day. And I have the time to sit there and say, hey, you know what? Um, I know that this, this particular problem that you have is a little more complicated than I can deal with. Let me call the specialist. Let me get some referral resources, uh, which is actually probably a great segue to Rubicon. There's actually a product on the market called Rubicon, and um, Mm -hmm. we can um, collect the patient's information and pass it on to this Internet-based service. They're based out of Harvard, but not all their doctors are, and they'll just pass it on to the appropriate specialist who writes a consult back, obviously without having seen the patient, but, you know, I'm in a sense, I'm that specialist's uh, eyes and ears. Mm -hmm. So... That company will tell me that 75% of referrals are probably unnecessary. And there might be a lot of patients who know that because if you've got seven and a half minutes with a doc, they don't have time to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So. 
So we're sitting in, uh, we're having this conversation in early November, and uh, it is re-enrollment time for uh, many insurance companies and definitely with the, uh, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I know that I personally just got the letter saying, hey, your premiums are going up. So. <laughs> it is insane how many phone calls I've gotten just in the last, uh, you know, two weeks. I don't yeah. know why there were already premium renewals uh, circulating, probably not through the exchange um, and people are seeing the, the huge increases. Uh, you know, just the way insurances work, the more, in, the more uncertainty there is, the higher the premium. Mm-hmm. They're just going to raise the plus minus, yeah. you know, around what they think the price is going to be. So your premiums are on that end, on the high end of things right now, probably more than they have been uh, since the ACA. Yeah. And so what is it about your uh, structure, pricing structure, that makes it different from insurance companies? Well, one of the things about insurance companies is a huge layer of administration. So one of the reasons we can afford giving such a price point, because, I mean, that's one of the obstacles. Like, this can't be true. It's just so cheap. But the fact is we have no administrative uh, overhead. The insurance company, if you use insurance, the utilization review, the administration, the claims administration, all those components, add such an incredible cost. And you're stuck with the copay, you're stuck with coinsurance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's becoming a prohibitively expensive process to rely on the insurance mechanism. Uh, so our model just takes at least this component of healthcare, which is where the small bills are concentrated. Let's face it, you know, I mean, the cost of putting a, a bill out. Mm-hmm. is the same whether it's a hip or a cold. Right. So, um, you know, I might bill 200 bucks expecting to get 120 because that's the way some lawyer wrote the contract, uh, but it cost me $20 to get the bill out. Well, they're going to bill $75,000 for a hip replacement. They're expecting to collect 50000 and their bill is, okay, maybe because they're going to build a hospital, the, doc, the, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist is $60. But that's still ridiculous when you're considering as a percentage of what you're going to get reimbursed. So anytime you're doing small bills mm-hmm. through an insurance mechanism, you're adding a ton of unnecessary administrative cost. You know, as deductibles rise, then it's way more likely that that guy who sat at home for six weeks with a pneumonia because he was afraid of what he would have to pay mm-hmm. is going to stay at home. Insurance doesn't give you access. It doesn't assure affordable access even. It does cover you if a disaster happens, a tree falls on you, or you wreck your car. But, you know, if <clears throat> you got blood in your poop, <laughs> to use that example, is like... <laughs> Or a cough. Let's stick to the cough. Okay. That's um, a family show here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. help. So you've really got to start rethinking how that, that mechanism of covering things uh, is helping you. So really, if you pair us with a high, de- high deductible policy, which really is a bronze in the exchange, mm-hmm. uh, there are... Um, I guess lower actuarial value value policies that are available through the employer market, and there are actually there's a resurgence uh, this year of non ACA compliant high deductible policies which resemble the catastrophic right. from the old days. Although they're easier to get in Oregon than Washington because they're they're better regulated here, mm-hmm. but that adds cost, so <laughs> so they're easier to get. Now, the companies don't want to come into Washington. So it's kind of the price to pay for consumer protections in this case. Mm-hmm. 
So what's the what's the future of this? You 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 talk about how it how when you started out it was pretty small. Now it's grown to about seven hundred different providers throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the goal to eventually supplant uh, the the healthcare system as we know it, or what what are we? Um, gosh. You know, I don't think it would necessarily be a bad system to rethink, a bad idea to rethink our healthcare system from the ground up. Um, uh, I, I actually started my career in Canada. So I have an idea about single payer and, and a balanced idea. There are a lot of people who, who really stand to benefit. There are disadvantages, um, and those can be balanced. Uh, I think the United States a long time ago, 1950s, uh, under the Truman administration, made the decision they were going to go with a private market solution. Mm-hmm. They were going to use insurance as the mechanism, and they were going to drive insurance to small bills. I think we need to rethink that. Insurance needs to return, in my opinion, needs to return to uh, covering catastrophic expenses. That's the policy core of it. Um, I don't know whether the United States will ever accept single payer simply because of the the ideological and political divisions in this country. The unity isn't there. So, you know, you don't try to ram that one down anyone's throat, to use the colorful language. So we have to change the healthcare system for sure. And I think this is fundamental. Direct primary care is fundamental to what changes are going to come. If uh, speaking about the the single payer, and as much as I think that that would be an ideal system to go to, I also agree that it's probably a long way off, if at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, would this model have a way of intersecting with that? I mean, it seems like it's well, yeah, because if you look at the NHS, they provide facilities uh, a flat rate for their catchment area. Is this starting to sound like an ACO a little bit? Right? I mean, that's what they're doing. They basically mm-hmm. say, hey, look, you got 40,000 people. They're in generally middle-of-the-road health, or maybe it's a low uh, socioeconomic status community, so it's actually going to cost more in this community, and we're going to give you X dollars per head over the year. It'll come out to you know $900 for primary care. It, in England, it won't in the States because we underpay primary care. You've got to double or triple what we're paying primary care mm-hmm. in this country before we get to the same levels of efficiency. But, yeah. Fundamentally, it's the same idea. And, and isn't that what value-based payment is? That's another buzzword that's going around. We want to pay doctors for the value that they deliver, not per procedure, because there's that weird incentive. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you kind of sit there and go, why do you mean I have to come back in a week? Well, you know, you got this little suspicion. Is it really medical? Is it really medically necessary? Or is it so I can, they can generate another copay and another visit? You know, that... that I, I've come across that, and I see that people are uneasy about it, even when I really think it is medically necessary. Um, you know, that goes away under this this, this sort of model. Mm-hmm. You, you you pay uh, physicians or or the facilities in the area to take care of human beings, not to take care of the visit. And if you knew the regulations around the visits, you'd know what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, we have to fill out a certain number of check boxes. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you examine three systems and ask questions about four systems, you get one bill. If you if you can get that one little question more, you you can you can double your reimbursement on that one visit. So everyone's sitting there going like, okay, right. So we're going to ask about the cough and you know and uh, you know talking about a cold. You know, if I can get the abdomen in. My reimbursement goes up from 120 to 160. So, well, how can I do that ethically? Oh, for crying out loud! That's the stupidest system I've. Well, 
I've heard stupider systems, but it's not a good way to do it. Let's right. put it that way. So you you mentioned earlier, and that and this relates to that too. Uh, the the provider experience. So many of us, because we are consumers in the system, think about our own experience mm-hmm. as patients. Uh, but pointing out that the insurance based system as it is now, is often very frustrating for providers as well, was an interesting point. Well, have you heard of the triple aim? The triple aim. Okay, so in healthcare, quality circles right now. The whole thing is about the triple aim. People want to improve quality by metrics, by measuring certain elements of care. Um, They want to improve patient satisfaction. That's the second really big goal. And they want to lower costs. And of course, everyone asks, how can you lower costs and increase the quality? You know, it's kind of like you've got got a Hyundai and now you're going to be driving a Cadillac because, and it's going to cost you less. It doesn't happen. But there's so much waste in the system that it's actually feasible. But the folks that are really smart are actually saying you cannot get good care from grumpy providers who are miserable, overworked, and don't have the time to do what's right and then go home and be miserable about it. So the quadruple aim is really important. And the misery of providers, sometimes this has nothing to do with direct primary care, but i got to say it. We, we are losing two full classes of medical students per year to physician suicide. What? Two full classes worth of medical school graduates, that number, of people are committing suicide. Now, I'm not saying the medical students are committing suicide, although there are. Doctors are committing suicide because they cannot believe the rigmarole. It's that that disconnect from most doctors. Obviously, we've had experiences with doctors who don't feel this way. Most doctors go in because they care and they want to do something really good for people, and they find themselves in a career where they're being managed by some guy from you know who's basically barely graduated at the bottom of his MBA school because if he was really good, he'd be working for a bank in New York, (laughs) and being fundamentally mismanaged and being told that the best way that he can help his organization is uh, by seeing more patients, which makes about as much sense as saying that Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata will sound better if you play it three times as fast. So they're sitting there going, like, this isn't what I signed up for, Mm -hmm. and you know, the more trapped you feel in that kind of environment, then the more likely that things like depression are going to... 65% of physicians today meet criteria for burnout. Mm-hmm. That's the care you're getting. You've got two-thirds chance that the person you see, if you see a random doc, is burnt out right. on a lousy job. That's pretty depressing. So... I have never seen a direct primary care doctor, to bring it back to direct primary care, I have never seen a direct primary care doctor who's depressed. They're usually happy and they're going, why didn't I do this before? I was just afraid about you know, being able to pay my mortgage. Mm-hmm. Do direct primary care doctors make less than doctors in other systems? It depends on the ramp up. So they can support a practice, depending on their overhead level, uh, in a micro practice setting where you really just have, you know, couple of rooms, maybe 800 square feet, uh, maybe with a part-time staff person, if that much, probably support yourself marginally at about 300 patients. By the time you get to 600 with staff in a larger facility, you'll be making more than you did Mm. working in the old system. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Medicare and Medicaid. Do you, how do you interact with, with 
those programs, since those are also insurance, how does that? So state, state by state, it varies. In Washington State, um, I don't think there's any significant restrictions um, to dealing with Medicaid patients. Um, you know, the big question is, are they paying for it? Is it ethical to take money from them? Um, Medicare, it's actually illegal. There, there's a sequence of laws that make it illegal to actually, uh, and, and what's funny is it, it's that I'm trying not to bill insurance. Well, it's, the, the illegal part isn't to take money from a Medicare patient. It's illegal to char, not to charge Medicare for a Medicare-covered service unless you completely opt out of Medicare. Oh, interesting. So let me just, I just want to make sure I understand that. So uh, say I am a person with Medicare and I want to come to you, but I can't because... If what I'm coming to you for is covered by Medicare, I have to go to somebody. It, that that means that the that that the uh, doctor has to find a way to bill Medicare, no matter what you're paying. Gotcha. So it has to be defined, and we've actually done that. We've gone out and we've gotten a lawyer, and basically, you know, people conflate uh, direct primary care with concierge. Well, the fundamental thing is you can't do direct primary care with a Medicare patient, but you can do concierge. Ultimately, one of the distinctions between those concierges isn't just the price point, but is the fact that you've got a monthly fee plus you're billing the health care, you're billing the insurance company. Right. So, yeah, you can do like a concierge light uh, charge a Medicare patient an access fee, but then I don't have the infrastructure to bill Medicare yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, never mind the fact that I'm running a clinic. Really, the big thing is a health, larger health policy issue. The United States pays way too much money and doesn't get good outcomes for, the, for its spend. And I think the fundamental reason is that primary care is not well reimbursed or well supported structurally, system-wise. And the other thing is that we're way over-administered. So, um, you know, things like duplication, waste, it's been demonstrated you can get at least 15% savings from primary care. You can probably add another 15% savings. So about a third of your costs go away when you have really good highly effective primary care. Mm-hmm. Then if you cut the administrative layer out, that's another third. Remember I told you that that one facility cut their expenses by 55%? Mm-hmm. That's four-ninths. It's funny. These two numbers happen to correlate. I think that's the ideal, and of course any implementation is going to take time. And the most important thing we've got to worry about is let's say we could by magic deploy direct primary care across the entire country. Our GDP would drop by 10%, and we would be in a depression. Stop and think about it. One of the reasons your health care costs are so high is because the economy depends on it. Well, that seems like it does kind of fall in line with a lot of the idea of you know, how do you measure growth? By growth. Yeah. And, and if it's all just more for more sake, but right. we're not looking at quality, then we have a fundamental problem. Right. And, and the fact is that you can't uh, magically deploy that. So that means that for all of those savings that, you know, in economic terms, right, I'm an MPH, I'm not a master's in economics, but <laughs> that's capital that can be deployed in other sectors mm-hmm. of the economy where mm-hmm. it's more productive. Well, Dino, this has been really informative. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. This has been fun. And that's our show. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Temple Lentz, and this has been Hello Vancouver. To find out more about Hello Vancouver, visit our website, hellovancouver.us, and be sure to check out our live stage shows in Vancouver, Washington, every other month. Hello Vancouver is produced by High Five Media.